So please open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 4. Last week we began Revelation chapter 4. And let's just read through it really quickly. And um, we'll see how far we get today. My hope is to finish this chapter. Uh, There's a lot here, I'll be honest with you. And and it's so wonderful. I, I love the fact that in the Word of God, there is nothing that is in it that is there by happen, happenstance. Everything there is by design. There's a purpose. God doesn't waste ink. He doesn't waste words. He says what he means, and he means what he says. You know, like the Ford Motor Plant, and let me just give you a really bad example, but it's the closest one I can think of. When they're on the assembly line and they're making a Ford F-350, the Hemi, the really nice one, um, when they're putting that thing together, they don't put spare parts in, in, the, in the automobile just because... It's a good thing to do. No, every single nut and bolt and washer and everything is scrutinized for the amount of money that that part costs because that adds up. And so God is even more so than that. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't put words in the Bible just because, you know, he wants to fill up ink. It is quite the opposite, actually. His word is efficient. It's condensed truth. And it's something that we will unpack for our lifetime. In fact, eternity will not be enough time for us to unpack everything that he has here, right? And so let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 4. And again, remember this as you read the Word of God to understand that everything here is by design. There are no mistakes. Nothing is there by happenstance. It is always very deliberate. And once you know that about the Word of God, it will open your eyes to help you study every little word. And that's precisely why, you know, I spend a lot of time going under certain things because there are reasons that God puts these things in here. And when we begin to look at their perhaps their original context or their original meaning behind this, it gives us a richer understanding and a richer experience as we read the Word of God together. And it'll certainly encourage your worship and your Bible study together. And it just opens up even greater doors of of understanding and certainly growth in the Lord. And so let's read this. John writing, he says, After these things, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices." Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature was like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O God, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, and there's a lot more uh, we have coming uh, as we get into chapter 5, hopefully next week or the week following. We'll just see how that goes. But remember, as we look at chapters 4 and chapter 5, the whole scene has changed. Uh, up until this time, we've been looking at the, the seven churches of Revelation. And those churches, obviously, were uh, entities that were on the earth. And, and those were seven literal churches. And we've already talked about this, and you can listen to previous messages. But um, now that the church age, you know, uh, John, again, is, is writing, and Jesus is giving them this revelation, not only of Jesus himself, but also the plan, the very thought, the very heart of God going forward after these things. In fact, if you look at the very first verse, it says, after these things. In the Greek, it's really important because it says, um, meta tauta. That's literally what the Greek is behind those English words, because we know the, old, the New Testament was written in Greek. So after these, after these things, literally in the Greek is meta tauta, and it means after these things. After what things would be the natural response? What things are you talking about? After what things? After what we just read. Chapters 2 and chapters 3 really encompass not only seven churches physically, locally in the first century, but they also encompass and uh, exemplify churches, the church age, from the very beginning on the day of Pentecost up until the Lord returns for the church in the rapture, where we meet Him in the air. And so, after these things literally means after the church has been removed. And last week we talked about the rapture in some detail. We could spend three or four uh, Sunday mornings talking about that topic alone. But as we go, and uh, we will be talking about it more as we get uh, further on in the book of Revelation. So, notice, we've already looked at after these things. We talked about what that means, and we talked about the rapture of the church. And notice what it says. It says, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And when, when you think of a door, it speaks of an invitation, doesn't it? It speaks of an invitation or admittance into something that you currently are not in. And so, John is being invited as a representative of the church, because he was part of the church himself. He was being invited by the Lord to come up so that John could write the things that Jesus was going to do yet future after these things, after the church age has been removed and the church is in glory. The Lord wanted to give John this message from chapter 4 down to the, the rest of the chapter of, uh, or the rest of the book of Revelation. Because even right now, the rapture of the church has not occurred. And so we folks, we're still in chapter 3, physically, okay? So, in fact, we might even be in this very last church uh, that, that is mentioned here, perhaps, the, the Laodicean church. Now, again, not everybody is lukewarm, but um, church-wide, there's a lot of lukewarmness and a lot of nonsense going on in the church, and people are being lulled to sleep, and I don't want to be like that. And even though the age may be uh, identified as that, that doesn't mean that we as individuals have to be that way. In fact, I would encourage you to resist it with everything you've got in you, and the only way you can do that is by opening your heart to Christ, getting in the Word, being in prayer, 
prayer and being fervent in your walk with Him, reaching out to others, speaking to others, you know, delighting yourself in your Bible study and learning more about the Lord Himself and learning more about yourself as well. And, and, and that's really wonderful to, to do. But notice now that John is being uh, invited to come up and uh, a door is opened. A door is opened to him. And in fact, um, the door is wide open because the Lord is calling him uh, up to himself. And remember, this is exactly what Jesus spoke to his disciples that night that he was taken um, right after the, um, the, the, the upper room, the, the, the Last Supper, if you will. Um, it's recorded for us in John's Gospel, four, uh, chapter 14. Jesus said to them, remember, right before he would be taken, he said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But notice what he says. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what did he say? I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. So do you understand that Jesus was telling them about the rapture, about what was coming? He would ascend to the Father. We know that he did that 40 days after his resurrection. He ascended into heaven. It's recorded for us in Acts and and, and in the Gospels. They looked up on the Mount of Olives and they saw him ascending. And two angels, as he was ascending, said, Why are you looking up in the sky, in the clouds? As he, just as he departed from here, he's also coming back. And he's coming back to that same spot, the Bible tells us, in Zechariah chapter 14. But notice with this open door, uh, when Jesus was speaking to the church in Philadelphia, what did he say to them? He says, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. It was an open door. And this, this Philadelphia was, of all the churches, one that God, that Jesus, didn't have to offer a reprimand of any kind. In fact, he said, the door is open for you. The door is wide open, and I want to be part of that church. Even if I live in the Laodicean age, I want to live my heart. I want to be a Philadelphian in my heart, and I pray that our fellowship is a Philadelphia church. Uh, because that, that's really what the Lord would have for us, right? We don't have to succumb to the Laodicean age. That may be the, 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 the temperature overall, globally, over the church, but let it not be for us individually and certainly in our fellowship. But notice what he said uh, to the Laodicean church, this church of the last days that we live in right now. What did he say to them? He said in verse 20 of chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why does the God of all creation have to knock to be allowed admittance into his church. It makes no sense. God has opened the door for us. Why is it that we shut the door on him? And we do that through various means. And so I just leave that to you as a, as a challenge because it is a challenge today. But notice we go on in verse 1 and notice what John says in verse 1. He says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Again, meta tauta. <laughs> and, and that ought to bring us back to certainly John, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where we have the outline. And so chapter 4 here, really, again, just to backtrack really quickly, that this is really the last 
third of, of the section of the book. Uh, there's a first section, a second section, which was the chapters 2 and 3, the church age, and now chapter 4 to the end is metatauta, after these things, things which must come after. But notice, and the first voice which I heard, and who is he referring to? It's really easy. Just flip over your page in your Bible over to chapter 1 and look at verse 10. Remember, John says in chapter 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the, Omega the first and the last. Now, who is this person? Who is this voice that is speaking like a trumpet? It is Jesus Christ. We know that very clearly from that. And this word trumpet, there's no mistaking, there's no mistaking this voice. It was loud and clear. It was a message that was clear to John. And, and this is encouraging to me, and I hope it will be to you, because whenever the Lord wants to get our attention, He can and will speak to you. You know, if you're one of those people who, who gets frustrated about the will of God, I want to encourage you not to fret, not to get discouraged, because I was discouraged early in my walk with Jesus because I really wanted His will done, but I didn't know how to accomplish it. I mean, we're talking about, how do I, I mean, every decision I make is putting me on a trajectory, isn't it? And so, for me to be in His will, that means that He's got to be control over my conjecture and also uh, outside influences that come into my path wherever I go. And, and I love this, that God, He speaks like a trumpet. He speaks in a voice that's loud and clear, like a general on the field with an army, he blows that trumpet. It's a unique identifying sound that everyone in the platoon, they all know what that sound is. And different types of sounds mean different things. And Jesus is able to get through to you. If you're discouraged today because you're not really hearing God, believe me, there have been uh, probably three or four times in my, in my walk in the last 25 years that I can honestly say that God intervened and He spoke to me so clearly one time was audible to me. I don't know if it was audible to anybody else because uh, most of them were sleeping at the time uh, in a room up in Franklin, Pennsylvania. But I will say this, that when God speaks, He is able to get, he, he's able to get a hold of your, your attention. You don't even need to worry about it. You don't need to stress about it. Believe me, because it's happened to me. I wish I could say that it was something that I did, you know, something that I did to merit him doing that. And the answer is no, there's nothing. Just be open and desire his will. He's able to get you there and he will. He'll speak to you just like he did to John. You know, these are watershed moments in our lives and God intervenes in wonderful ways. And so, and you know what I like about this is it reminds me of, you don't have to go here, but I would encourage you to write the reference down in Exodus chapter 19 is a time three months after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. Remember that God brought them together there at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and He was going to deliver the, to them the law. And one of the things that He said to them, and, and it's in Exodus chapter 19, and beginning in verse 10, let me just read it to you. It's just a few verses, but it will kind of put this trumpet idea in perspective because, again, God, when He speaks, it is loud and it is clear. And we're going to see as we look in the, further in the chapter when it talks about thunderings and lightnings and voices. Believe me, heaven is not going to be a quiet place. 
but we're all going to be able to handle the volume. <laughs> but notice what it says in Exodus 19, verse 10. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, and he's talking about the Jews at this time, having come out of Egypt just three months ago. And go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. And whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow." Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Notice, when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And so the trumpet, again, is an invitation. It's a a unique identifying sound, and there's no mistaking it. There's no mistaking it. And that's the way God has uh, chosen to to work throughout history. When he wants to speak, believe me, you're not going to have a problem hearing him. He has a way of doing it. I know this for sure. And many of you do too. You've had situations like that and sometimes there's years between those things and so we do we get discouraged just like the patriarchs just like Moses we get discouraged just like Peter we get discouraged you know like Jeremiah because you know we think of all the things that God had written to them and sometimes there was there was years sometimes decades in between these visitations if you will where God spoke to them loud and clear loud and clear and so And it's interesting as we go through the book of Revelation that the only two musical instruments that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are the trumpet and the lyre or the harp. I like to think of it as like a guitar because I'm partial. So so these are the only two instruments that are mentioned. But look again at chapter 1 at the bottom part of the verse. He says, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place meta tauta after these things. Again, come up. I would underline that word because that word is very interesting. It's a Greek word, and it's anabaino, anabaino, and literally what it means is to ascend up, to, to rise up, to be born up, to spring up. It's very interesting uh, and very similar to the word that we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where... Uh, Paul tells us that, speaking of the rapture, that we will be caught up. The idea is harpazo, and that word means to be snatched up violently off of the earth. It's a very similar word, although there is a difference because the harpazo, when the rapture occurs, it's going to be involuntary. We're not going to have to. We're not going to be able to say, um, "Lord, uh, give me a few minutes. I need to wash my hair. I need to take a shower. I need to put on something a little more appropriate." There's going to be none of that. It's going to happen, and whether we like it or not, no matter what we're wearing, no matter if we've brushed our teeth or not, um, uh, it's going to happen. But this, uh, this anabaneo or anabaino, this word literally means, you know, God basically invited John as a representative of the church to come up and to see these things, to see these things. After this, after these things, And notice verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. You know, underline that phrase, in the Spirit, and I would have you also put off to the side maybe a little reference, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Because when it speaks of being in the Spirit, it's sort of like being transported to the time in the future, just as John was in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. 
while he was still physically on the island of Patmos. Because remember, as John is being uh, transported in a sense, uh, and, and even right now in the beginning of chapter 4 here, he says that he was, uh, he was taken up, come up here, you know, the Lord says to him. But he says he, he was in the spirit, meaning his body was still physically on the Isle of Patmos, right, in that, um, in that mine that he was working at as punishment from Domitian. So he was in the spirit, he was transported somehow to the time of the end. We don't understand that. It, was it a dreamlike trance? Was it a, whatever it was, it was something that was spiritual, it was something that was not physical because his body was literally there still on the island of Patmos. But notice what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. It, remember, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That means that he was in the Spirit during this period of time, the Lord's day, which really encompasses uh, uh, a period of time from the rapture of the church all the way to the end of the millennium. And some people uh, just include it and just say that it's just the time of you know, the rapture of the church or the time of the great white throne judgment, whatever that is. But that whole period we could designate as being the, the Lord's day because it's, it's something that the Lord is going to do and it's a, a day that he has been longing for. And a thousand years is his one day and one day is his a thousand years as it says. And so we have every reason to believe that John was being transported to the time of the end that God was showing him. And so uh, uh, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 really quickly. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're just going to look at the first four verses. This idea of being in the Spirit is very similar to what happened to the Apostle Paul. And he records for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this. He says, it is doubtful, and I would encourage you to read the whole chapter in context because it, the context is important. He said, it is, doubtless not profit, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up. And that word again is harpazo. So again, Paul he was also not physically caught up, but in the spirit, if you will, just like John was. He was caught up to the third heaven, uh, which is the, the abode of God, the throne room of God, which we're talking about today. And he goes, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter. And so that's really the idea behind this in the spirit. And you can also look up Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9 through 16, where he had the vision of the, of the, of the sheet coming down with all four you know, different creatures on it. And the Lord was teaching him something about what was going to happen just immediately after that. But we're not going to go there right now. Let's go on. Uh, because it says uh, that the throne, notice in verse 2, that this throne that he saw in the Spirit, uh, there was a throne set in heaven. Uh, set meaning it was solidified, it was, it was concrete, uh, there was nothing that could move it. In fact, in this chapter alone, in chapter 4, this word throne occurs 14 times, and there's only one other chapter in the Bible that has anywhere near that, and it was 13 times. It's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 1 when David made Solomon king. And so this is really an important chapter because it really speaks about the throne room of God. And notice the throne is set in heaven. This is not, you know, um, 
some game where somebody can come along and knock the guy off the mountain like when you were kids you played the king of the mountain or the king of the hill no this is a throne that is set very firm there's nothing that can take it out of the lord's hand nothing anyone can do to wrest it out of his hands that's how wonderful our salvation is. And I love the fact that chapters 4 and 5, we read of this throne room in heaven, and we also see the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, taking the scroll. We'll see that next week, hopefully. Uh, He takes the scroll out of the hand of the Father on the throne, and it's a scroll with seven seals on it. And and, And so we have this pause before we get into this horrible time that the Bible tells us is yet future to us today. It's yet future to us and uh, these seals each one is going to unleash excuse me each one of these seals is going to unleash judgments upon the earth that the world has never ever seen ever seen this is going to be the worst time in history of humanity but it's going to be a time of God's judgment upon a world that has rejected his only means of salvation which is Jesus Christ and again that's lasts from chapter 6 through chapter 19 and we're going to be looking at that slowly as we go along but I love the fact that there's this pause a little breath of fresh air before all hell breaks loose on the earth and believe me folks it is coming that's one thing that we can't remove from our talk to people as we talk to them about the gospel we must let them know nobody wants to talk about judgment Certainly talk about the love of God. Let that overwhelm everything, but do not forbear to tell them that there is judgment coming. There is an accounting coming, and there is no way to escape it, and there's not a soul that can escape it. Do not take that out of, your, of the equation. You mustn't. You remove the teeth of the gospel because there are many people today, many pastors saying, oh, just come to Jesus. Everything's going to be fine. The Lord will give you that fancy new car. He'll, you know, and he may give you a fancy car, but, you know, none of that matters. Um, But there's none of this mamby-pamby sort of cheap stuff that is being promoted in the church today. Uh, It's not all roses. No, there's coming a time where it's going to be, there's going to be judgment upon this earth and you can be, um, you can escape that judgment because what does it say in First Thessalonians five verse nine? For God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So whose team are you on? Are you going to be on your own team? Well, guess what? If you're on your own team, you're going to go through that great tribulation. What team are you on? Are you on the team of, uh, of government? Guess what? You're going to go through that great tribulation. If you are on the Lord's side, if, the Lord, if you are on the Lord's side and he's on your side, believe me, you will be removed from that time of wrath that the Bible has a lot to say about. And believe it or not, more of it's in the Old Testament. And as we go along, we will look into that as well. But notice that... That behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. We know that that one who is sitting on the throne is God Almighty, God the Father. In Psalm 110, you know this verse very well. It says, The Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, and the, the word is Adonai in the, in the Hebrew. So Jehovah said to Adonai, Jesus Christ, and this is what God the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice what that says. Every enemy of Christ will come under his judgment in in, in this period that we're going to be looking at. 
on the great tribulation, every one of them will be under his foot. He will have dominion over them, no matter who they are, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, the liberal media, it doesn't matter. They are all going to be under his authority. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses um, uh, 12 and 13, it says this, But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. That means God the Father. So Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. It also says in Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of Jesus again in verse 3, it says, who, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, speaking of Christ, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Jesus is. That's where he told the Pharisees that he would go. He would ascend to the Father. And notice in Hebrews 12 again in verse 2, Paul admonishes us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we know that God the Father is on that throne and Jesus is sitting on his right hand. And in verse 3 it goes on and it says, And he who sat there, uh, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. These two stones that we're looking at this morning, this jasper stone, is a very hard, adamant stone. It's clear as crystal. It's mentioned also in, in Revelation chapter 21. It, it could be a diamond because diamond is one of the hardest substances known to man. And so this stone, this jasper, is not the opaque stone that we have today, but this is, uh, they can also be clear. And this one, it's speaking of something that is clear as crystal and it speaks of the purity of God. It speaks of the truth of His government, that He's firm. Everything is established, that nothing can change. It's absolute. It's perfect. And then it speaks of the sardius stone, which is a stone that was uh, found in uh, Sardi, uh, um, Sardis. We've, we've looked at that church in the book of Revelation. That city was known for this stone. It was a deep red color. And um, it may remind us, remind us that God is a consuming fire, you know, and that He shed His blood for us. It speaks of His redemption on the cross on our behalf. And so again, these stones aren't mentioned here just, again, by happen chance. They're there specifically for a reason. They're telling us something about the one who sits on that throne, the jasper, his, his purity. A diamond is, is hard, it's firm, it, it cannot be moved, it cannot be changed. You know, and a sardius stone, a blood red stone, a very beautiful stone. Um, and it's also interesting to notice that on the high priest, on his, on the ephod that the high priest would wear back in the time of of, of the patriarchs in the in the priesthood, they would have a, a a breastplate. And the first stone in that one, in that breastplate, was a jasper. And the very last one on that breastplate was. The Sardis stone, Sardius stone, and these all represented. The jasper represented Reuben, the firstborn, and certainly the um, 
the, the Sardius represents the very last son of Jacob, Benjamin. And, and these, uh, the word Reuben means behold a son. And the word Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And so what do you have in the picture of these two stones? You have nothing more than Christ, the first begotten son, who's also the son of God's right hand in relation to him being on the throne. Because he sits at the right hand on a throne next to God. And I love that about the Lord. Again, is there any coincidences that these stones represent what they represent? No, they're there by, by design, by purpose. And you can read for yourself in Exodus chapter 28, uh, verses 17 through 20, but read the whole chapter to get it in context and you'll see what it means, what it means. And notice verse 3, he says, And there was a rainbow around the throne. A rainbow is something that we're all familiar with. Just yesterday we, were, we went on a bike ride out in Rush and um, it began to rain out in that area. Just a light rain, but there was some really beautiful clouds on our right-hand side as we were driving. And we saw this wonderful rainbow and it looked like it was stretched out. It looked like, uh, it looked like uh, the Borea, uh, Borealis, uh, Aurora, Borealis. Aurora Borealis. It looked like that and it was a rainbow and it was the most beautiful, gorgeous thing. We took a picture of it, a couple pictures. We actually pulled off and risked our lives to get the picture. But the rainbow, and you know, I love that because uh, the rainbow is something that God gave to Abraham, I'm sorry, to Noah, and for all of us as a promise. In fact, let me just read it to you because, again, the fact that there's a rainbow and there was a rainbow around about the throne, what does that speak of? It speaks about all the promises of God or in, in Him Amen, or yes and amen. And when he makes a promise, he cannot break it. You and I can break promises all day long, but God will never break his promise. And what was the promise? Because after the flood, you remember in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, um, afterwards God made a promise to Noah. And what was the promise? We look at it in Genesis 9 beginning in verse 13. Let me just read it to you. God says to Noah, I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, and the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. And notice, every living creature of all flesh, the waters shall never again come, become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and it will, I will look to it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So it's a promise that God would never flood the earth again. And we see that, we're reminded of that every single time we see a rainbow. Are there local floods? Yes, there are local floods. Is there going to be a worldwide flood ever again? Absolutely not. It will never happen. I don't care what the those who uh, are involved in global warming, what they might say. In 50 years, the whole world's going to be covered in water because the glaciers are going to melt. And all that. Hey, listen, I trust the Word of God. That's it. <laughs> you can trust the Word of God. God says he will never do it again, and we can rest our lives on that. You can take that to the bank. Redeem the rainbow, folks. <laughs> the rainbow, unfortunately, has been hijacked by the LGBTQ population. And you know, the Lord loves them, but he hates their sin, just like he hates our sin of whatever sin we have. Sin is sin to God, whether you're a fornicator between a, a, a man and a woman that's unmarried, or whether you're a homosexual, it doesn't matter. Whether you're a thief, whether you're a liar, God hates sin. And 
but that rainbow, that promise belongs to the earth. It belongs to everyone because it's God's promise. And so that's all I'll say about that. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, there is a lot of speculation as to who these 24 elders might be, but before we begin to unmask who these 24 elders might be, because there's not a lot um, spoken of, but I think there's enough in the Word of God that we can deduce. And for whatever reason, the Lord doesn't give us uh, the, the, the clear-cut answer in a lot of places so that we can make a, uh, a dogmatic statement about it. But I'll tell you my opinion, and maybe you've got an opinion too. But first, let's talk about what it is not. These 24 elders, they are not angels. And why do I say that? Turn with me to Revelation 7, verse 11, because this ought to end it (laughs) right here. This statement in Revelation 7, verse 11, notice what it says. Now, in context, we don't have time to get into the context, but notice verse 11. All the angels, notice, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their face before the throne and they worshiped. And and then they give their doxology here. But notice, there's three different groups of people, three different entities here, and they're very clearly laid out for us. The angels, the 24 elders, and the four living creatures. Do you get that? So there's no way that this group of 24 elders are angels. And also, angels don't receive crowns like the redeemed do. Angels do not receive crowns, and they aren't partakers of salvation like you and I are. That's why they kind of scratch their head about this plan of salvation, this plan of redemption. You know, these are things that angels want to look into because they don't have the need to be redeemed. You and I do. But turn with me over to chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, um, because we'll just quickly look at this and we'll go on. So I don't believe these are angels at all. In fact, in in chapter 8 it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, and we're going to get to this in the next week or two, when he had taken the scroll, this lamb, who's Jesus, from the hand of the one on the throne, which is God the Father, notice the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down before the lamb, each having a harp, which speaks of music, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Sounds like a a priestly kind of thing, doesn't it? Isn't that what the priest did back in the Old Testament? And notice what they sang, a new song. And they said, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We're going to talk more about that that phrase, those couple of verses, next week, uh, because there's some things we need to talk about it. But let's just look at it at face value for now. These are um, uh, probably, we establish that they're not angels, but I believe that they are also not... um, uh, representatives necessarily of the priesthood. Uh, Some have said that maybe these 24 elders represented the priesthood that David had established of the Levites. It's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 24, uh, the first 18 verses about how uh, there were 18 different heads of the the priests uh, and, and actually 24, I'm sorry, 24 heads of these of the priesthood. It could be that because we see some priestly duties that they did do here. They, there was some kind of worship involved here. And also, it's, actually, it's all worship. 
but that they were offering incense. Uh, that's something that the, the, the uh, uh, priests would do as well. But let me suggest to you that these are representatives, simply put, of the church age, Jew and Gentile, because of that very statement that we just read, because it says, you've redeemed us to God by your blood. Who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ? Has it been angels? Um, uh, no, it hasn't. But is it true that the church has been redeemed? Because you're a part of the church if you believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, if you believe that it was sufficient and that it was that it covers you and that you've received Christ. So this could only be the church, the representative of the church age. And so, and in fact, um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, what does it say? Uh, verse five, the end of verse 5, going into verse 6, it says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so one of the things as we go on here that's going to be really interesting um, and challenging, actually, is the fact that there really seems to be in the book of Revelation three different scenes, if you will, um, at least three different scenes. Uh, going forward from this moment, actually, in chapter 4 to the end, there seems to be three scenes. And the one is heaven, where we're talking about now, the very throne room of God. And then there's another scene where there's the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years on this earth. On this earth, uh, Jesus will come back with us at the end of the, of the, of the seven-year period and set up his reign for a thousand years, okay? That's a second scene. The other scene is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which is going to replace this current heavens and this current earth. So at the, at the end of that thousand-year reign, Second Peter chapter 3 tells us this, and also we read about it in later on in the last few chapters of Revelation, this current heavens that we see around us, the stars, the moon, the sun, the earth itself will be consumed it will fade away. God is going to dissolve it. Peter says it's like fervent heat. It's going to be dissolved in fervent heat. And yet God will create a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem wherein dwells righteousness. This is the eternal state, the eternal state. And so when we look at this, you know, are these 24 elders, are they in heaven? Are they going to be representative during the, 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 the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, yet future to us? Or are they going to be in the new Jerusalem? Well, I believe that uh, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. And I don't think anyone is really sure completely. They're, they may still be in heaven. Um, but let me share with you one thing. Revelation 20, verse 4 says this. This is one thing we know for sure, I believe, with good certainty. In Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, John, again, he says, And I saw thrones, and this is at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. You can read it for yourself. Revelation 20, verse 4, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Are these the 24? I don't know, and I don't think so, actually. But it says, And to them judgment was committed to them. So, what could this mean? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27. What does it say? Verse 27. 
And this um, it says, Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all, and you have to read this in context, of course, but he says, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? And Jesus said to him, verse 28, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, which we believe is the millennial reign of Christ, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, speaking of his twelve disciples, who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice that. The church put in this very lofty position, this place of authority. It doesn't mean that the, the twelve tribes won't have uh, a standing at all, but in the millennial reign we believe that these twelve, the, the twelve apostles, and I don't mean Judas, Judas was the only one that was lost in this whole thing. And I believe Paul the Apostle, as he states in his, God, in his letters, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He met Jesus uh, before and after his resurrection. Uh, uh, Paul, there's no doubt, is an apostle and, and I believe that he is the 12th apostle. That's just my own opinion. But the, rev- the regeneration spoken of there in 28, we believe, is the thousand-year reign of Christ. And notice, he says, to those, you who have followed me, you are going to be ruling and reigning. Later on, in Jesus' time with his disciples while on the earth, it's recorded for us in Luke 22, verse 28, he says this, a similar thing to them. It's a, it's a different, a whole different time and it's a separate event, Jesus said, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and notice, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So to me, it's very clear that the, the, the apostles, the twelve apostles, will be in the millennium reigning on twelve tribes. Now, what does that have to do with these twenty-four elders? Um, it may not have anything to do with them. Um, they, they could be, the twelve apostles could be a part, perhaps, of those twenty-four. I really don't know. We really can't be dogmatic. So let's just go on <laughs> anyway and notice a couple of things. Notice that these twenty-four elders, they're clothed in white. When you look in the Old Testament, you see the priesthood, they were clothed in fine linen. They were clothed in fine linen. In fact, what does the Bible say about fine linen? In Revelation, again, chapter 19, it says that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. And so this speaks of purity. It speaks of righteousness, doesn't it? And that's the very robe that Jesus clothes us with, right? By his blood, he makes us white as snow. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it, that Isaiah tells us that how is it by his blood we're made white as snow? We're going to be made red. Red is very clear. I mean, it's, it's one of the most distinctive colors that there is. And yet, by his blood, we are made white as snow. And Jesus puts his robe of righteousness around us once we become a believer in Christ. And notice what it also says, that they had crowns of gold on their heads. There's two different types of crowns in the scripture. One is called a diadem, and that is a crown of sovereignty. It would be something that a king would wear who is, has authority over his subjects. However, that's not what these crowns mean. These crowns are a Greek word which is called Stephanos, which means a laurel crown. It's a, it's a lesser crown. It's, it's a crown that victors in the, uh, the games, the Roman games, you know, that they would have these as rewards for their, uh, for their service, for whatever game they were, they were doing. And there's a lot of, um, 
verses that speak to this. You know, Paul knew that he would receive a crown, a Stephanos, when he met Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he says to this, he says, Finally, there is laid up for me, Paul says, a crown, a Stephanos, of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, on that day, on the Bema Seat judgment that's recorded for us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10. And it, it speaks about that. And so, and also, what does it say in Revelation 22, verse 12? Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and notice, my reward is with me. When we are rewarded, we will be given, at the very least, crowns, just as Paul was anticipating a crown of righteousness. And these 24 elders, they had these thrones, and they, they had these uh, linen uh, uh, robes, white linen, and they also had the crowns, these Stephanos. How wonderful is that? And from the thrones, notice verse 5, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Again, a loud, a very loud display on heaven there. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And again, in Exodus chapter 19, we were there earlier in the service. And in verse 16, it says that in this same uh, event that we started uh, earlier, uh, after the children of Israel come out of Egypt, when they were standing at Mount Sinai, right before God would give them the law, it says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. Notice, you know, just as we read in chapter 5 here of chapter 4 of Revelation, that before the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. So now in Exodus chapter 19, God appears to the whole nation as they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. And notice a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet, there it is again, was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. And then in verse 18, it says, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Actually, in Saudi Arabia, where they believe Mount Sinai really is, there is a mountain that is black on the top and we believe that is the very mountain. It wasn't the one in Sinai down there in Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula. I believe, uh, based on what I've read and done some looking into, I believe it was in Saudi Arabia, just like Paul said it was, actually in Galatians. But anyway, let's go on here. In verse 6, it says, Before the throne there was also a sea of glass. A sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes. And you know what? Um, we're, we're rapidly running out of time. And so I think what we're going to have to do is uh, take a pause here, actually. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 6 next week. But it's good for us right now to take communion. And so I would encourage you, um, again, this is a wonderful, a wonderful chapter. There's so much here, and it's such a rich uh, passage, and I'm looking forward to finishing it with you next week, and then the following week, for sure, we will get into chapter 5, and again, be encouraged by these things. And, you know, as we look at this throne room, may it encourage you to know that God is in control, and I can't think of a better time to be encouraged than right now as we are in the midst of a time in history that none of us will ever, ever forget. This is the first time in history that we've experienced what we are experiencing right now. 
and, and certainly with all the violence and all the changes coming, and remember that God is in control. He's in control. And as they worshiped, as, as these, uh, these four living creatures, which we have yet to get to, these 24 elders, as they worship at the throne, really that's what we do right now. We worship Jesus based on uh, what He has done for us. We worship Him. Remember what happened. Jesus said in that upper room the night before He was taken by that mob led by Judas Iscariot, (laughs) there on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room before He was taken. He did something unique that no one has ever done before. Countless ages had been celebrating Passover up to this point in time, the Passover meal, symbolizing the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt and the death angel passing over Egypt. And anyone who was inside the house and had the, the, the doors and the lentils and the side posts covered in the blood of a lamb, they were exempted from the death angel taking the firstborn. That's what that whole Passover meal was all about and how they had to get out of there in haste. In the nighttime, they had to be delivered. But at the end of that, um, at the end of this Passover meal, Jesus did something really unusual that's never been done in any Passover meal, and that is he took out the bread. And, and those times they would have loaves of bread. And they would, uh, in a pre-COVID environment, they would just take a big, uh, uh, ch- uh, what is that, charula, I forget what the name is. What's that? Chala bread. They, they have something like that or something similar, and they would just tear off a piece, and they would hand it to the next guy. And these guys are fishermen, and who knows how clean they were. And they would just grab that loaf and pull off a chunk and hand it to the next guy, right? And so Jesus did that as they're sitting there reclining on the floor with this uh, table, this triclinium around them. And as they were in the upper room, he would say he would take this bread anticipating what was going to come to pass within hours of that moment, that he told them well in advance. He said to them, I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to be put into the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles, and they will crucify me, but on the third day I will rise again. That's what he told them. And so now this night that he was taken, before he was taken, see, they didn't know that he was going to be taken that night, but Jesus knew very well what was happening. Everything was under control, and yet he allowed man (laughs) to continue. So there he is, and he takes the bread, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he says, take it and eat it. And so in fact, let's do that. Let's take the, the bread, the matzah, whatever it is that you have, and let's take that. Notice that the bread, most of you, if you have a matzah, you notice that it's, it's pierced, just like Jesus was pierced on the cross. And I'm sure that for baking purposes, nowadays when they do that, they do that on purpose because it's unleavened. There's no yeast in it, right? So they have to cut it or put holes in it maybe to keep it from rising a little bit. I don't know. But there's holes and then there's marks on it where, and it's symbolic really of, uh, it just happens to be this way uh, with our matzah. There's marks where Jesus was whipped and tortured with the, with the, the, the flagellum, the cat of nine tails. And he was brutally beaten, brutally So he says, take this. This is my body which is broken for you. As often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. And so we remember you, Jesus. We remember what you did on the cross. And Lord, we honor you by taking this. And Lord, we also remember the great price that was taken 
the great price that was given, Lord, the greatest worship that ever occurred on the earth was when you were on that cross and you took the sin, the punishment that we all deserve. You took it upon yourself once and for all, never to be done ever again. This is not a reenactment. This is not the literal body and blood of Jesus. This is a token. This, we do this in remembrance of you. It's symbolic. And so, Lord, we take it right now in remembrance of the body that was broken for us. Let's partake. And after they had done that, they had a chalice. Wine at that time could be fermented or not. I'm sure that this was not fermented. It was just grape juice. They would call it wine. And notice what Jesus said to his disciples. Then he held up the cup, the grail, right? They're all in search of the Holy Grail. Indiana Jones. But he took the chalice full of grape juice or wine and he took a sip of it. But before he did that, he says, This is my blood of, uh, this is the blood of my body. And this is the blood, this is the blood of the new covenant that I make with you. And so we know that the very blood of Christ, it was a precious blood, a blood unlike any other blood that has ever existed. We, we, we looked into this, and I don't want to beleaguer the point, but the very blood of Christ was unique. It was the very blood of God. There was no blood remnant of, of certainly Joseph and not even Mary. This was something that God did in the womb of Mary, this blood. And Jesus said, I, I give this to you. The very blood of God was given to, for us on the cross at Calvary. And so that's why we do this. We remember what he did. And how could we ever forget, really, right? But we do it in remembrance of, him, remembrance of him, and we thank him for it. For without it, we would be hopelessly and helplessly lost in our sin. And I'm so thankful today that Jesus has done this for you and for me. Amen. Let's partake. Praise the Lord. I am so excited that we get to do what we get to do, and I can't wait to do it when we're all together again. Uh, this is just a foretaste of heaven, folks. I mean, I don't know about you, but what we just did there, as, as routine as it can be, you know, we take uh, communion usually three times a month. It's been a little different during this time because it really didn't dawn upon me until just recently, hey, we can. We can still take communion. Virtual communion. <laughs> and so... But it blows me away just to consider what we just did and what that means. And, and I pray that you would never allow it to be the sort of thing where it's just kind of like a rote thing that you do. But, you know, just examine, you know, let the Lord. My prayer for this is for myself and also for you, that uh, as we go forward now, as things start to open up, as we begin anew in a sense, let it be a renaissance in your life. And I mean that in the fullest sense of the word meaning a rebirth. Uh, a, 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 if you've never been born again, I pray that you would take this opportunity today and receive Christ into your heart. Uh, he's not going to force you. He's not going to make you do anything. This is a volitional choice that you have to make on your own, and you have to realize that you need to be saved. Because if you don't feel like you're a sinner, and if you act as if you, or believe that you've never sinned, then guess what? You have no need for a Savior. But the truth of the fact is, is that you're still a sinner. <laughs> and unless you receive Jesus into your life, there is no way of admittance into heaven. You will go to the place that you've chosen, and that is hell. There is heaven and hell, and you have to make that decision 
And I pray that all of us have made that decision. But if there's anyone here online that has not made that decision, today is the day. Do not put it off another day. You do not have the guarantee of tomorrow. You don't have the guarantee. It's important today to get your heart right with God. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. It's never His desire that you should perish and be separated from Him. But He will not force you to do anything. Do you understand? God is a gentleman like that. It's, it's a love. It's love. Doesn't love give a choice? And, and that's the choice He gives you today. In fact, He said to the children of Israel, Today I give you life and death. And what was His exhortation to them? Choose life. Choose life. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what are you going to choose today? Please choose Christ because He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. No matter what you've ever done, no matter what you've ever said, no matter the, the, the history of your past, no matter how deep and dark and filthy and awful, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. God looks at it all and says, I can wipe it away in one fell swoop of my blood and you are covered. Do you realize that's how complete, that's how efficacious, if I can use that 50 cent word, that's how wonderful it is. That is the, the truth of the blood of Christ. He takes it away and he wants to wash you clean as a slate. Do you want to be clean as a slate? Even as a Christian, do you want to be clean as a slate? Then you bring your heart before him and you say, Lord, please, in fact, let's pray now. Father, I pray that you would touch my brothers and sisters. For those of us who do know you, that you would cover us in the blood and wash away all of our sins. Lord, help us to confess them as we know them. And your word is true, as it says in 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10. You said that you will forgive us if we confess. And you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the guilt of it, God, goes away if we truly comprehend what you did on that cross and what your blood really means. Lord, may we do that. And Father, for anyone here this morning that this is all new to them, pray that God today would be the day of salvation, Lord, that you would uh, convict the heart of every person that doesn't know you, Lord, in your love, God. Only you can do this. Lord, it is something that you do. Man can't do this. We can't save anybody. You alone save. You, God, save. And I pray that you do that in a wonderful way today. Please, God, mend and heal every soul that is hearing my voice today. And even as it goes out over the radio, per, per chance, later, Lord, use and do marvelously, Lord. You are the great King, and we love you with all of our heart, God. Please take control of our lives again. Lord, revive us. Revive us, Lord, and help us never to depart from you, Lord, to stay on the narrow path where there is life, and everyone is invited on that narrow path, but it is a narrow path. You also said there's a wide gate and a broad way that leads to destruction, and many there are found on that path, Lord. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. God, we need to reach out. We need to be vocal. We need to share the truth as often as we can, whenever you lead us, God. But, Lord, we invite you to do that. Please do it in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.